Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 68th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Wednesday, the 13th of April 2016 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Derek Varn. After listening to the previous show about cultural Marxism with Doug Lane, Derek sent me an email saying he'd like to come on the show and give his two cents. What followed was a wide-ranging discussion on ideology, value theory, and the historical emergence of capitalism. We also discussed the possibility of a revolutionary movement based on a system without abstract value, Marx's critique of the Gotha program, and Star Trek as a Marxist tract. And on top of all that, the possible productivity of a communist state, game theory and alternative histories, and George Orwell in the Spanish Revolution. But first, I have to thank the new iTunes reviewer, Amitai Avaram, and of course, all our monthly subscribers, Alex W, Sean L, Jesse L, Jeffrey S, Ambrose A, Jarek McH, and Christopher W. Your help is much appreciated. Now, to the interview. So Derek, you sent me an email about the last episode I did with Doug on cultural Marxism. And you said that one thing we kind of didn't really get around to, or maybe got slightly wrong, was the shift in Marx's earlier and later thinking, specifically around the term ideology. So what was this shift in Marx's thought? Well, it's very hard to say exactly what the hard shift is, but the manifestation is he drops the term. Marx's writings go from a kind of general Hegelian critique, and you see that in the German ideology in particular, also in the thesis on Feuerbach, and uh, a lot of the stuff he didn't publish. So when you say a Hegelian critique, what do you mean? I mean, he operated under Hegelian terms and tend to, and tend to speak more broadly and generally about, say, materialism, qua materialism, or ideology is just like a broad concept of, of diluting thoughts. This is not to say that we know that he abandoned his thoughts on ideology, that sometimes uh, Althusser and Balabar will try to claim that. We don't know that he did. But what we can say is f- from the periods around Grandessa, he uses a term a lot less, and in Capital, he doesn't use the term at all. In Capital, what you would think would be ideology is actually the term is used as fetish. And what a fetish is, it's a manifestation of an abstraction, like currency. So it's a physical thing that stands in for an abstraction, which itself stands in for a social relationship. So this is the idea that money is not some external thing. It represents a social relation between parties and maybe the amount of labor that's in an object. And then you get a a real thing in the world, which is trying to express an abstract relation. Right. And so ideology may or may not be about that. I mean, Marx's use of the term is not is not as specific as later thinkers and later thinkers tend to tend to superimpose their readings of ideology back onto Marx. That could be 
the Lacanian Hegelian reading of Zizek, which I don't think is actually in particularly coherent. Um, and I could go into why if you really want me to, but ideology for Zizek is basically everything and nothing. It can be the real material ideology of Althusser, although I'll be damned if anyone can tell me what it is, what that actually is, other than RSAs and ISAs. What are RSAs and ISAs? Repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. Althusser's uh, focus on the state seems to be a particularly French phenomenon and comes out of the long tradition of French state absolutism, um, which is not really Marxist so much as Jacobin. And even before that, it, it's, it goes into France's transition out of feudalism. Um, if you want to read on that, the, the Marxist historians to read are Robert Brenner and Ellen Mirkin Woods. So I have a question for you. So you say that the ideology was replaced by fetishism. Can you explain how they'd be replaced? Because to me, they sound like quite different things. They are different things. I'm not saying he's replaced, but the the idea that your abstract, your your set of set of abstractions are manifested in your ideology. Marx doesn't talk about that after he quits writing about his other left Hegelian counterparts. When he talks about capitalism, he talks about fetishism in specific. It talks about the commodity fetish in specific, but the metaphor is definitely specific. So is this something like that Marx didn't think was especially relevant to the, say, kind of operation of capitalism? What do you mean, ideology or fetish? Yeah, the ideology that the fetish was was, was critical to, well, was, was a... Well, the, the fetish is a, a, f- a fetish is a phenomenon of value theory. Exactly, exactly. So whereas the ideology is is nearly something that he didn't... It was like a, more of the, say, polit- political element that he kind of left out of capital somewhat. Right. I mean, it is. And it's it's one of the things where, yes, there's definitely ideological ramifications in capital, but the ideologies of capital can change in a way the fetish structure of capital cannot change and still be capitalism. Explain that. All right. So if you take the foundational definition of capitalism and you don't read it back into the past you only read it in its historical instantiation in europe and particularly in its emergence probably in britain all right you you take those sets of core values and i use value here loosely because i'm that'll be confusing later on what defines capital from prior economic situations and antiquity other things that use markets late early modern late feudal forms of absolutism one is the focus on reinvestment. Two, the reason for reinvestment is the drive for more value. Three, this leads to increased number of private property. Four, and it leads to elites not being able to use extra economic forces within their own legal sphere as much. So, for example, in England, you have a decrease of the ability of landlords to, to just like take a pike and take your money. It's got to be under the auspices of a rent. It's got to be extracted from cells. That cells has to be extracted from exploitation. That exploitation, you know, is the, you know, is the difference between extraneous value and socially necessary labor time. That's unique to capital. That difference is value. That value is reinvested and becomes more and more abstract. Prior forms of, and even, even some concurrent European forms of economic arrangement. So if you look at the French state and the Spanish state, which emerged at about the same time as proto-capitalism in, uh, in England, so we're talking 
like 1490 to 1776, just to pick two big important dates. Why is it that the exploitation of, say, the Americas goes very differently in the Anglo colonies, which is all focused on first mercantilism and then agrarian capitalism, from the exploitation in the Hispanic colonies, which were, they're both equally brutal, they both used chattel slavery, they both had modern weaponry, etc. and so forth. What's the difference? The biggest difference is the Spanish and the French were still using something like a late feudal monarchical model and their reinvestment went into weaponry, not into production. So they built weapons to keep the people down or to build forts or to, you know, maybe ex- extract wealth. Right. They extract wealth in what we call extra economic ways. There is markets, okay? But markets aren't unique to capitalism. You find markets in non-capitalist societies. There are markets going all the way back to like pre-currency even. There's debt in non-capitalist societies. So unless you want to read capitalism back all through history, and most neoliberals do, most liberals do, but a Marxist doesn't, doesn't, should not do that. We don't see capitalism as like some trans-historic natural way of interacting. And exploitation, though, can only happen in a non-extra economic way if you're producing abstract value. And the only way to, for abstract value to be the key driver is by the difference between value as use value and value as abstract value being extra pronounced. The reason why value as abstract value becomes important is that you produce all this value on paper that determines all kinds of things. So the predominance of markets in this situation leads us to be able to get a good idea on what an actual price is. Back in the day, if you had, you know, some dude in the west of Ireland and, you know, collecting mussels or something and trying to sell them somewhere to some other people who are inland, they wouldn't really have an idea what's the labor involved so much. You could, you know, it's not going to be a hard price like a market is today. Right. So you got predominance of these markets and then you have exploitation on top, which means that when you have the market dominating and you have people being exploited. I'm not necessarily saying markets could exist in a communist society, for example, but markets themselves are not the key function of what makes something capitalism. That is a, a liberal idea. That is not a Marxist one. For example, if I, am a, if I am a producer of a product of labor and I don't have any employees, I don't have any employees, but I own my own machinery, I own my own labor, and I'm a yeoman of some kind, right? Pre-bourgeois, or, or bourgeois in the true sense, um, in the true early, pre-modern, pre-capitalist sense, all right? I cannot exploit anyone for what I do except in sales. But I can't do that for very long because people will start trading with me. So markets then don't have the same function. They're still, they still have the same epistemic function, and, and, but they don't have the same uh, – an epistemic function is just like a way to kind of aggregately affiliate value by transactions. I'm not as uh, sanguine as most capitalists in how effective it actually is for that, but it, it is what it's doing. All right. But I'm not exploiting anyone by selling my stuff in the market if I directly made. That is a very different thing than I have employees whose labor I extract to sell this thing in the market. So the market sets the price, but I have to get the labor from these individuals 
somehow below that price in aggregate. Like I got to pay less than I get or it's not going to work. That gap creates abstract value. That gap is unique to capitalism. That's your profit. And you can use that profit for reinvestment, which is the third block you're talking about. Right. And, and, and it's reinvestment into the productive mechanism, not into other means of getting use value. If you're just concerned about use value, the best thing to invest in is a gun. So I can take your shit. Correct. So the, the uh, say the British model, say in America, was to invest instead of more things for just pure extraction of, say, wealth, that you start having a productive element. You're investing some of the stuff you've exploited. You're investing that back in, say, in America to build capital, you know, build factories. Right. Although they, they realize the problem with this very quickly. What's that problem? Well, that you create your own comp- your competition and you drive your own prices down. So that's why that's why they started trying to impose mercantilist policy. And they and it wasn't just in America. I mean, they did it to Ireland too. They did it to Ireland first. Everything was done to Ireland first. Yeah. <laughs> and the role of America in this, in this role of what we call the agrarian period of capital, is very important. It creates all sorts of new problems. And this is something Marxists, very few Marxists actually talk about. It's a very early period of capitalism because. Our vision of capitalism as Marxists comes from the industrial period, and I think we even tend to read some things like France in the, in the 16th and 17th century as capitalists when they kind of weren't. I'll tell you why England may be the best model, and I wasn't convinced for this until very recently. I read uh, Ellen Merkin was the origins of capitalism, the longer view, and Robert Berners, the, the bourgeois revolutions are – I'm trying to think about how what that title of the book is, but his long book, it's just really long. And they focus a lot on agrarian capitalism. And as a kind of epiphenomenal side effect of both Protestantism and the, and the way they tied the lords down, extra economic means of inquiring wealth was limited in England in a way it wasn't in the Catholic countries. So by extra economic, you just mean coercion or... Yeah, coercion, um, basically coercion. <laughs> a pike in the face. <laughs> um, also slavery. So, so, I mean, coercion, but also coerced labor, not just like coerced extortion. Yeah, indentured slave or indentured... Uh, servitude. servitude yeah. uh, that was a big one for the Irish. Yeah, massive taxes. Did you know there's a, there's a community of the kind of lowest caste community in Barbados is this... Irish indentured slave community that still exists as in they're kind of all very white and they all look like they're from the middle of nowhere in Ireland but they speak with uh, with a Bayesian with a Barbados accent a Caribbean accent and it's really crazy but apparently they have the lowest status and they're called red legs in Barbados huh I did not know that so this was actually first done in Ireland it's actually first done in England but in England it was not met with as much resistance Interesting thing about this, though, is what this does is it turns a lot of sort of peripheral classes into bourgeois. It can make yeomen into bourgeois. It can make petite aristocrats and minor aristocracy into bourgeois. And it can make merchants into bourgeois. But it started off probably with the enclosure movements and the seizure of church property. 
As they did that, they started enclosing, uh, denying peasants access to the land. Eventually, also, they got more and more efficient because they were using that to get more money. They didn't need the peasants, forcing the peasants into the cities, creating the right conditions to have massive urban labor that you would need for industrialism, which explains a lot of why, for example, some of the technologies that had existed um, that could have been used for industrialization had existed since late antiquity and had been abandoned in feudalism because there was really no incentive to keep them going. So the incentive back then was people weren't bothered if you were a lord or something, you can just extract a rent of right. wheat or whatever it is that produce and you can live like a king and you can sell that in a market and get money for it, but you don't, it's more like a consumption of the surplus as opposed to a reinvestment in new machinery for your peasants to produce more. Exactly. You don't... You don't need market, you know, you don't need capital sufficiency in that system. This is not to say that these pre-capital systems were necessarily great, although they did, even peasants probably did less labor than we think because they would produce for use and their lords used and their own use. And yes, it was brutal and awful and nasty, but they probably had more free time than we did, at least for some of the year. Now, capitalism, though, in this agrarian mode was still not very growth-inducing. The growth-inducing of pre-industrial capitalism, uh, I got this from Thomas Piketty, which means that he's not a Marxist, so non-Marxists can take this seriously, was probably about 1%. The growth percentage in feudalism is no percent. <laughs> it's a no-growth economy. Four use, two use. Growth of agrarian capitalism is about 1%. When the industrial stuff happened, it's, it booms. Now, this brings me to something else I kind of talked to you guys about, about the proletariat being conflated with the working class. The meaning of proletariat is not working class. And Marx was not an idiot. He did not use the wrong word. Proletariat means propertyless. Marx said that the working class was the proletariat in so much that it was propertyless. Now, admittedly, Maoists play games with this, particularly third world Maoists. You know, about how, like, well, the working class isn't the proletariat because I have property now. And there might be some truth to that, but that's not my point here. The working class did not have property. It could not extract rents. It could not create its own subsistence. So what years are we talking about where the working class were propertyless? 1600 to probably even now. All right. The majority of working class is still propertyless. They might own homes, they might own houses, they do not own means of subsistence. So they do not have property in that sense. Furthermore, the proletariat right now is particularly de-skilled, which is a different issue. But they do not have the means of their own subsistence. And in that sense, they're actually worse off than peasants. <laughs> because peasants have the means of their own positions in theory. They can have a chicken and four, four pigs and survive the winter. Right. The valid argument the Maoists have made about this in, in regards to like settler colonialism, and I do think this is valid, I don't think it's true now, but it was originally true, is that the working classes of the settlers and settler colonies mm -hmm. did have real property in addition to being working classes. Uh, a, friend of mine, a friend of mine says America's, like, America's founding myth is based on the yeoman brain, and I think that's somewhat true. So this is the idea there was so much land going, everybody could, everybody could have a farm. Right. And even if they, even if they worked in the city, they still know someone who had a farm and they, they could have other investments. So is this idea then of the, the proletariat 
versus the working class. Is, is this something that kind of Marx misread about how capitalism would develop? Has there been a structural change from, say, the, the complete destitution of the working class in Marx's day to, say, to now, where people, I think they don't feel, maybe it's just propaganda, but they don't feel as as bereft as they would have, say, in the 1850s, say, in, in England. They aren't, but they also can't, re- they aren't, they aren't, that's true. Um, I think Marx was wrong about the timeline, sincerely. What do you mean by the timeline? I think he felt the declining rate of profits happened faster than it does. And I also didn't think that we knew about long-range social cycles as sort of semi-reset things through the crisis itself. All right? Declining rate of profits leads to war. War leads to destruction of surplus goods. Surplus goods leads to destruction of surplus value. Hence, you can soft-reboot the system every 70 or so years. And this was something you think that Marx didn't figure in? No, although it's completely consistent with his own like theories it's just that in 1860 this was a lot less obvious than it is now we've had five generations of industrial capitalism in most of the developed world now marx had half of one and then one in england like two in england and half in the rest of europe to base his observations off of but in in when we talk about his falling rate of profit i i don't think like a fair reading is Marx expected the rate of profit to fall down and then like there would be communism. No, no, he's not an immiserationist. But I think he thought that the situation would be bad and the labor, the, the labor demands would, they would fail faster than they did. If you get my drift, like you and I talk about how, like, for example, modern monetary theory would indicate that Keynesian, the Keynesian stuff, policies will work at least in the short term. We just, I think you and I disagree about how long they'll work. I give it a generation, right? But if you let that, you can let that, you can go through a cycle, then reboot with something like Keynesianism, <laughs> then collapse, and that'll get into stagflation, then it'll collapse, you go back through the cycle, and then by the time you get through a long cycle, about seven years, you can, usually some kind of war or national disaster is going to happen, and there you go. You can you can go through a lot of, re, of of reboots that way. The latest stuff is you know sixty foot floating in seventy five years time. There goes half the world's capital investment. Exactly. I mean, there's there's plenty of things to to wipe this out. Um, there's other pressures. I mean, there's population pressures, which something Marxists just don't take account into. There's uh, other social structures. I mean, I do think. That while, you know, I, I adore the work of Andrew Kleiman and, uh, you know, Doug and I were our friends. I do think they underplay the significance of contingent factors on the way capitalism develops. But capitalism is because of its focus on abstract value is remarkably good at adapting because it puts so much emphasis on reinvestment after a crisis. And that crisis could be an economic crisis. That crisis can be a war. It can be a meteor. Yeah, so like this idea of, you know, constant, like if everything gets destroyed, you, you have the system in place to, to renew, essentially. Right. And, and that, in that sense, capitalism is incredibly effective at, at la- outlasting its own systemic contradictions. Because the, these, these pro- ironically, though, a lot of the crises that it's renewing from are crises that its own structure causes. So crisis is both the... The savior and and this fundamental reason. 
<laughs> yeah, it's the savior and the fundamental problem of capitalism. It has this idea, you know, it's like birth and rebirth. It's getting very Asian here now. We're getting, we're getting the yin and yang. <laughs> I mean, well, the, Schopenhauer, the Austrian economist, wasn't wrong about the importance of creative destruction for capitalism. In a certain degree, Marx presages that by pointing out how much destruction it actually requires if it doesn't stagnate. Any of these liberal economists, whatever t- of whatever type, essentially, I think they've all read Marx, and then twenty years later, they re- reword his theories, and then people say this is a, a fantastic new theory, and then they coin it a new name, and they become famous. Well, but my favorite is how uh, um, the falling rate of profits has become back in vogue amongst like legitimate non-Marxist economists. Not that Marxist economists are illegitimate, but you see it discussed in the Economist magazine. So what did you, you say that uh, that Andrew Kleiman, you think, I, I don't know what you said exactly words, but like... I think of, they sometimes underestimate the effect of contingent factors on capital. You're talking about external or external crises rejigging the whole system, you think? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know that he's, I, I don't know his position on this. He doesn't talk about it. Yeah, no, I think he doesn't really talk about it. But I, I think he defends, I think he kind of is very adamant about not, looking towards the falling rate of profit as something that just goes down. You know, he explicitly argues that it's something that rebounds, you know, and that it's not a, a, a cure-all for... Like, there are people out there that look at the falling rate of profit historically and they, they graph it. My first debate, how I actually really got involved with climbing was I accused, him, I accused the Marxist humanist, not so much him, actually, more Dunyanskaya, who I'd read, but a little bit him, of being a miseration theorist because of how much focus they put on the falling weather profit. But I did not realize how, how uh, important long wave cycles are to their theory. And so I'm not saying anything that they're not saying. What I'm saying does not disagree with them. It's just it's a, it's a difference in focus. I might disagree with them on, the origin, on how pervasive capitalism was at its origin. I'm not even sure about that. Because, again, it's not, it's not Andrew's focus. It's not Doug's focus. It's, that's more my obsession. Um, my reason for that obsession has to do with my cynicism, and this does put me in a different category from Andrew Kleiman and Doug, about pre- being able to think your way to a revolutionary position where you could pre-plan what the next stage of the economy would be. I don't think that. I don't think Marx thought that. What you mean? You don't think you can come up with ideas about what a new economy would look like? Not before you start to do. You could know. You could. You can only know that negatively. I suppose you can say that about anything. You know, about any kind of plan you have that won't exactly exist as it does in the abstract. But uh, I think you can have general understandings of. Like I think if you don't theorize it and try and understand it, you can never launch a thing if you don't have plans in in, in place. I think that's wrong. I think that's historically just actually nuts. I think I can actually just tell you flat out that you're wrong about that. Like capitalism was not capitalism did not emerge from a plan. No, all. absolutely capitalism didn't. Yeah, absolutely. feudalism did not emerge from a plan at all. Late antique slavery economy did not emerge from a plan at all. There's not a single developmental stage in the development of modern economy, economy that I can say emerged as a coherent ideology before it existed. Not one. And my fundamental argument with most socialists is that you can think that we can somehow think about the conditions of what it would take to produce a society on our scale with 
outvalue before we can start to undo the society that we currently live in, which has predetermined our notions about value. I don't, th this is where I actually side with Adorno, not maybe more than Marx. And this is, you know, one of the things that Doug talks about when he was talking about cultural Marxism that so frustrates him. But, you know, I don't know that we know what it would look like. This is not to say that I don't think that capitalism won't be undone by a revolution. But, like, wait a minute, wait a minute here, like, because, you know, you say about, say, slave societies, people got it into their heads to go and get slaves. That wasn't just something that organically happened where people proffered themselves randomly at the same time as somebody had a job to do under coercion. Have you actually studied the anthropology of slavery? No, but like you, you, like you gotta, you gotta think that slavery was somebody had the idea to go. I know I'll enslave these people and I'll wrap chains with them the, and work them for. We them. don't know the exact origins of it, but the current evidence that we have is that in inter an intertribal warfare between agricultural economies, that it actually wasn't premeditated, that they just got tired of killing all the men, that genocide got boring and expensive. And what do you do with the subjugated people? Well, you can make them do your work for you. I know, but that, 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 that actual step had to be thought of. You know, yeah, but it had to be thought of probably in the moment. Yeah, but you know, but it, yeah, but like they have these things have to be taught now. Like the difference there is that that's a quite a it's not a huge step in thinking, really. You know, no, it's not. It's not a huge step, but the thing is that the the structure of capitalism is so so complex that the step required to actually negate its structure or the steps required need a higher level of thought than just improvisation. And if you don't, ha if you just rely on improvisation, you know, you'll probably never escape it because it's so complex. But the, 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 the idea, though, and this is an idea that Marx had, is that because of the innovations of capitalism, we would be able to pre-plan and totally control the next step is the fundamental debate between socialists. And that's a big debate. Say that again, sorry. He said that Marx thought that you could have a plan, a centralized plan. Well, he says it flat out, the premier. Like the, the, he didn't necessarily say centralized plan, but he says, prior to now, men have been controlled by their material conditions. Now, men can control the future by controlling their material conditions. And I actually don't disagree with that. That's not the issue. If you mix that with central planning preemptively, you, you essentially say, I know what we need in an entirely differently organized society. Now, we, I think you're kind of misreading how strong I'm saying this is. I'm not saying you can't have like sets of demands to undo capitalism and programs and plans for that. But the idea that you could programmatically come up with communism was something that I think Marx, if you read the critique of the Gresset program, I think Marx actually pretty much states it flat out. You can have a plan for transitioning out of whatever phase of capitalism you are. In fact, for him, that was the Airfuck program. But you can't have a plan for a fully non-capitalist form of society yet. We don't know what that would look like. That's why he talks about you know stages, which I think is confusing the people but is that not it was was part of that not some of his 
way of trying to say that we we have to scrape back so many layers that we don't know now know what the layers we have to scrape off are even 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 ideologically or whatever but if you on the the gotha critique he critiqued something that was explicit about the gotha program was about redistribution as far as i can remember and he talked about labor tokens which which and he used that specifically to try and break the relation of value which seems to me to be a very important point but it ta- it takes all of 5 minutes for someone to take apart a labor token as a way out of value I, I can I can do it to you. I almost I almost wrote your whole letter when Paul Cockshart appealed on your show. Paul Cockshart said for things to be fair, that you can't just pay everybody the same thing. You have to pay them based on their labor and the prior investments to be able to do their labor. What rule of the Gertha critique does that miss? I don't know. Tell me because I I, I can't remember. <laughs> That such fairness already might exist in liberal societies. He actually says that about LaSalle's program. That that if you did something like just labor tokens and then went back and factored in prior education, you actually will create a class society because there's going to be one sector of workers because of the nature of what they do. It's going to have to have more education and that's going to have to be compensated for some way. Is that Paul Cockshot's idea of how to compensate people, or is it somebody else's idea, or is it Marx's idea? That's Paul Cockshot as when he asked him. I don't, I actually got yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, it's like what I'm trying to say is that like there's no there's no reason why a doctor should get more pay than a bin man in a in a socialist society. Except that it's going to take a doctor ten years to learn how to be a doctor. It's going to take a bin man one. Or no years. Yeah, but the thing is that a doctor might much more enjoy his job than a bin man, so maybe you should pay the bin man more. You're acting subjective notions of value, I know, and you can't do that. We're talking about a society with no value, you see. We're talking about how we, how we price labor. But you, you, you're talking about how you price Not labor. Not price, price is a... the wrong word. How, how, we, how, we give, how we distribute goods. How we compensate labor, how we distribute goods in a non-capitalist yeah. society. And you will notice that you can't even talk about it you, you can like no you can't you are talking about it in terms of capitalism right now you cannot talk about it without the same <laughs> what do you mean like, I, i'm confused you, i don't know what you mean i mean like you don't know how to, like i and i can't either no but say you, you're in you a can communist. kind of vaguely nebulously can see what it would not have you're in a okay, communist society you got a doctor and you got a bin man right well but in a communist society you don't compensate anybody well, you do compensate. What? No, 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 they may have their needs met. You don't know that you compensate. You don't know there's any currency. You don't know there's any abstraction at all. Ideally, there's none. Like, obviously, people have to be compensated for their labor. Whether you say that they, everybody's compensated Why? exactly the same, or else we starve. So, like, every, you know, we have to no, have... No, 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 no. Why? Why do people have to be compensated for their labor exactly start? If we can meet their needs, all right, why do we have to compensate them? Well, that that assumes no labor then, because you know everybody will have to work unless there's no unless it's fully automated society. So everybody does some work, or some people do all the work and some people do none, or whatever it is. But like just because for each of their ability to each their own need, which assumes some people have no ability, which also means I I I don't think most of these schemas have actually thought how rooted in capitalism they still are. And this is where, like, I, I don't think you actually see what you're talking about right now, seizing non-capital society. And I'm actually just, I, I find it kind of humorous that you are proving my point by the fact you can't even conceive of what a society would be 
when you don't need to compensate people. Oh, you have to compensate people because people do labor. Well, not necessarily. Well, maybe it's just the language. Like, obviously, everybody's going to get if if a common post-capitalist society, whatever we want to call it, produces a certain amount of goods. I, I don't like the term post-capitalist because that assumes a teleology. Let's call it communism. Yeah, let's call it communism. I like the term communism. Right. So you, you've got to, it produces like a million goods or whatever, and you have so many people. You're going to have to, as a society, understand where you're going to push them. What are you going to use them for? Or also what you're going to produce, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, so just the act of deciding what goes where, that's not capitalism. That's just deciding which goes where. You know, in Star Trek, you know, they don't say that Worf works harder than uh, Riker, you know? And so give Worf a smaller room. The thing is, but Star Trek is a key... It's a key pro- is a key way to think about this. So this is my Doug started writing a book about Star Trek and its attempts to get out. And he realized when he was writing it, that, I don't know, putting words in the Doug's mouth, that Star Trek actually couldn't conceive of a society that was totally non-capitalist. It couldn't do it. Now it could conceive of elements that were totally not capitalist, totally not capitalist in the way. For example, a replicator that everyone has access to pretty much means that capitalism doesn't make any sense. And yet, there are still capitalist societies, sub-societies in the universe of Star Trek, and somehow coexisting and subsisting with this larger way of speaking and being. So, yes, I'm not saying we can't conceive elements of it. But that doesn't mean, you know, if we're looking, you, <laughs> we can't you, look to, we can't look to just because there are Ferengi in, uh, in, in Star Trek, that means that, you know, replicators won't get rid of capitalism. You know, I don't think Star Trek is trying to be, you know, a very strict Marxist theorist. No, they're not. But they're also not, they're also not conceiving of a society that is completely classless. The other thing that communism has to be, and the reason why I specify that you must say communism and not post-capitalism, you could have non-capitalism, something young capitalism that's still a class society. Communism, by its definition, is a classless society. It both has no abstract value and has no, no class, no class distinctions. So this is what exactly what you're saying. You're saying there's no abstract value and there's no class. We can, we can, but those are, but those are negative conceptions. Like I can say I know what communism is, in so much that it doesn't have this. Yeah, but they're not, they're not necessarily negative because you can say here's an economic system that doesn't have value, that doesn't have abstract value. You can conceptualize one that doesn't have value. It's not like that's what I'm trying to say. It, it is possible to conceptualize one that's not having value, and that can be the basis of a of a revolutionary movement. You know, like that it's, we know what it, it, it can't have. So when you design a system with the structure, you structure it theoretically to understand and you analyze whether will this have value or not. And if it doesn't have abstract value, you can say, well, this is not a capitalist system. I have difficulty in understanding exactly what is a nissan capitalism, though. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of the, the point, right? That's why we have to lay out our demarker super clearly. But I think we agree on what it isn't. But I don't. You say that you can't come up with something that it's that. I can't come up with something that it, that is that meets my two criterions for communism preemptively in capitalism at this moment in its completeness. I don't know it, but I think you can do it. Like, but and I think people have tried doing them, and I think yeah, that, I think they've failed. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, but just because the biggest I, the biggest complaint that you always hear Doug and in the Marxist humanist. Talk about so much is that uh, the Soviets were not 
really non-capitalist because they still accepted some form of of, uh, of surplus value. They just they just thought that if you if you took that surplus value and spread it around equally. But there was other great problems there, like with the, with as you know on on one of the latest episodes of your symptomatic redness podcast, which is brilliant. If anybody doesn't know it, listen to it. It's my favorite podcast by this stage, I think. But there's one on 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 the Soviet economy that they had the problem that they had an a de- economy that wasn't developed, and that if they didn't extract massive surplus from their peoples, mostly I think it was from their peasants, agricultural surplus, and invest it and industrialize it, they would have just been attacked by the West and put out of business. So that, that they had to actually get to a certain level. But like, say, if there's a, a communist revolution in the morning in America, nobody can attack them. They've got 10,000 nukes. Yeah, it just can't happen. But it should be possible for... But it would, be more, it would take more than just collectivizing the surplus value of the labor because this is, this is the issue going back to the fundamental definition of capitalism. If... No exploitation is part of your fundamental def- definition. You don't undo exploitation by just exploiting everybody equally and sharing the proceeds equally. Yeah, like I think this word of exploiting is a kind of a, you know, it's a hard one to, to really think about clearly. Well, because, but, but here's, here's the reason why. But, well, the reason I say this is because, say, because somebody with a disability and, say, now existing in, in the UK where I'm living now at the moment, right, and they are looked after by the state, you know, in some state, you can now say, well, that, you know, it's it's a stupid way of putting it, but that disabled person, you know, is exploiting the, the abled. But it's not really, it's not the right way to think about it. You know, it's not the same relation as a capitalist to a worker. You know what I mean? So in a communist society, you'll always have redistribution of products or whatever it is, investment, whatever. You're going to have them redistribute around so that everybody's going to get their own labor. But you don't look at it like that. It's not like you have this system of exploitation. You have this equality and you have everybody deciding where things should go. You know, so it, it feels like exploitation is not the right word to use in a system where not getting what they actually produce. But it would still be exploitation in that you would still have every incentive to work people to death and keep their calories down, which is exactly what did happen in the Soviet Union, even after they industrialized. Well, I think that you, you I think that if you're in a situation where you have an, an other, you know, a powerful other. And you don't. So are you to... going to imagine a, a a world without politics? Because that's what you're basically positing communism will require. Well, I think it's, let's let's imagine a scenario where the Soviet Revolution happened for some reason in the 1950s instead, and they already had the nuclear bomb. How would they have had the nuclear bomb without the reinvestment? Just, just I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Let's imagine. Just for now, let's say America. There was no communist revolution until America. 1960 and the whole load, they had a whole load of nukes, right? Mm-hmm. The, out, the actual political pressures are entirely different than the political pressures that would be on them in Russia in 1917. That's that there's nobody that nobody could come to do anything to America. They couldn't do a thing. If there was a radical revolution there, no one could do anything except other Americans. Yeah, but you know, if you have control of the state and the re- whatever you want to say, you know. You, you, there's nothing external forces could do. But internal forces totally can. You, another thing you have to remember that what, what drove Stalin to the lunacies that he went to was a legitimate concern over internal forces. And that also those internal developmental needs led to more and more out and out exploitation along the same lines that ca- we argue is the problem with capitalism. And I don't, I don't think you can just wave that away. And I don't think just putting it in a different time period makes that go away. 
the idea that you would fix the scenario by just taking the surplus value and redistributing that surplus value equally, well, that just makes everybody everyone else exploiter. That's not what communism is, and that that's explicitly stated in Marx, pretty much verbatim in the critique of the Goethe program. It's also why the state's not needed if you're actually in a scenario where you have a communist society, but you have to get through several different other things to get there. We don't know what they all are. We could probably have a program to get to something like socialism, which is the workers' control of the state and the workers' ownership of the means of production. We can know what that is, ish. Although th- that has totally never completely happened. But we, we know what that is. We can set up a set of predefined things like this is this, and the workers have, you know, there has to be some sort of worker control of the apparatus of the state. The other classes have to become subsumed into the working class. Uh, the, the, the state must, must own the means of production because, because we still have a concept of ownership and that can be used to break that concept down, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, like so. One of the things is is like in capitalism, the biggest driver of productivity is this exploitation of labor and competitive markets, right? right? Yeah. Now, if you were to have a communist revolution in the morning and you had a system, can it have that productive element that capitalism has? You know, I have no idea. I mean, well, uh, this is a key thing. You know, like that because you, you have your outside pressures and all this. Unless the whole world magically re- goes in the way the one time, you you know you, you have this problem of productivity. Well, I mean, it gets us back to the Star Trek problem in that let's say even let's say even if the capital uh, capitalism was no longer the dominant social form sometimes, and in which case, if that was the case, it would pretty much die as a social totality. There could still be pockets of it. I mean, just like there's pockets of feudalism still existed. It's not like everywhere on earth is completely and totally capitalist yet, although we're all pretty damn close now. So it's not, you know, I don't think those are the key issues. And this is kind of what Doug was getting at about when he talks about thinking about it positive. We have come at it at a completely different means, but we agree on this. The Soviet Union, because of where it was developed and and if it had continued developing prior, by the way, if you read Marx's letter to Vera Zerlich, he actually talks about the fact that he didn't think what the Soviet Union was, uh, what Russia was going to develop into was either communism or capitalism. He said that it, the, the, the specific way that the peasants, the peasant Soviets, and by Soviets here we, we mean pre, you know, council control and land could have developed in a completely different way. He says that outright in a letter to a, to a Russian anarch, uh, anarchist. So he obviously thought there were other ways to develop into modernity. But those rays, for the most part now, really are gone. Um, the other model that we could really talk about that I mentioned briefly is like French absolutism, which was another attempt to go into modernity and modern production. Um, the problem with French absolutism was it didn't reinvest enough and led to all kinds of state crises, but it did have sort of proto-capitalist or quasi-capitalist elements in it. Um, and that really came out in a revolution. So it's hard to say whether there was another modernity possible. 
But Marx seems to indicate that there may have been in his letters, and these letters are particularly late in his life. These are, uh, I think, written in 1881, so near the end of Marx's life. The problem, well, I think you've got numerous problems. You know, you have this kind of game theoretical problem, you know. You have this game theoretical problem that when one person, one nation switches, all the others are going to attack, you know, and you're going to have pressures on this nation. You know, right. so these, you got these like these are like game theoretic ones. You know, you see these simulations that you run over long periods of time with the probability of one doing. But sometimes you have these events can occur where many many countries close together could could do it at the one time, and they've got a, a feedback effect. And then you 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 see this in uh, systems theories. You'll see where things oscillate from one state to another state. You know, and there's no kind of real intermediary one. So you have that idea of a kind of a systemic problem of of going not just not just a, a a problem of oh let's get rid of value in this one place but you have this even if you do that you have got these systemic problems and on top of that then you've got the idea the problem of when we get this system we know that say is not doesn't depend on abstract value yeah you know, tries to get rid of that capitalist kind of key component and say class as well that you have to see how that works in reality like literally that might have a lower productivity rate like say agrarian capitalism had versus productive capital you know industrial capital. Well, i mean honestly at this point to save the world we might need it to have a lower productivity rate but what we don't want is a mass die-off in the, in the interim i mean yeah yeah but i mean like that literally that the, the, that in in you know if these institutions of a communist stuff they might be zero growth you know they literally might be like we get to a certain extent and then we decide to basically go to some kind of yeah, utopian I mean, feudalism where things don't grow in, in 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 any way which is probably what the planet fucking needs but like that that's that but the problem is is that 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 this is not a a game theoretic model that works it's because you if you've got a, a neighbor who's growing at 6% per year and they're going to have in in twenty years they're going to have an economy two or three times your size, and they're going to have weapons that are two or three times the, the the capability they can attack. Right. So the the incentives, both internal and external. I mean, this is this is the so, fundamental. So this, this is a real real problem. Yeah. Yeah, real problem. So you have got all of these things. Well, I mean, you, and on top of all that, we've got resource restraints. That are oh yeah. So you've got this, you know, you've got a trifecta of bad things. I, I, I disagree with you so much on, I think you can come up with a system that is non-capitalist and you can show basically how it'll work. You can know what the institutions vaguely you might need to have to change the institutions, but you don't know what's the productivity of that. You don't know, you, you know, and I think that's a huge element. Well, I mean, the, the, actually, I think you, you and I are not disagreeing as much as it maybe it sounded like I was just getting pissy about conceptualization but to to clarify what I mean we of course we can think of non-capitalist societies there's been non-capitalist societies um I mean modern ones yeah <laughs> but 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 I mean well yeah but you could you can imagine modern feudalism we don't want it but you can imagine it you can even imagine a way that capitalism could regress into it in fact I can easily see that but what we can't know are exactly all the variables that would have to be dealt with to make such a thing possible. We can't say totally demand this, this, and this, and this, 
before our preconditions of even beginning a revolution because we don't know for exactly what the productivity growth is going to be. We don't know what the external factors are going to be. We don't know what our own internal politics are going to be because they're going to change. We don't know how. And so you cannot possibly come up with an entire contingency for it pre-planned in a programmatic way. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying like, oh, we just have to be fatalistic and wait for capitalism to fall. I think you could come up with elements of these programs. Elements, but not a total program. But I think you can come up with necessary elements or you can say we have like a 10 year plan, which would be, you know, the introduction of these certain types of things. And we need to do that type of stuff. You know, if you're the communist revolution in the morning, you're not going to get rid of money. You know, it's just not going to no, happen. No, 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 I don't, I completely agree. It you mean, know, like, so... Be, unless, you, unless we have waited so long for the revolution that money has gone away for some other reason, which which seems to me, like, more insane than... <laughs> um, no, you're you're right. It's, it's There are fundamental structures, and I think that you can plan towards that. I don't think you can micromanage the whole thing, but, you know... Okay, well, we're going to agree to disagree here, but let's actually talk about... I think it's a disagreement on scale, perhaps. Uh, yes, it is. It is it, I think you and I agree that we can conceptualize what non-capitalism would be and what... The no, let's talk about communism. Let's talk about proper, fully... But, oh, yeah. We, and we can, can maybe even conceptualize on what communism would be and what we think would be necessary for a transition to it to begin. Yes, like, or, like, or necessary for, once that transition, say, ne- what's necessary for that transition... Right, which itself would be a total social revolution. I mean, like, but what we can't insist on is that we could implement this on a worldwide scale on day one, knowing everything and being able to. I mean, it just seems like, like, for example, if I planned out Paracon, right, for Paracon to really compete with capitalism, it's got to be already the dominant system. Like, I I, I don't see how it works. (laughs) It, It makes you too vulnerable. Um, if it's not all, if other things haven't already gone away, because it, it'd be very hard for a paracon system, for example, to coordinate an army. I mean, and these are these were the old the old Soviets used to say this about like confederated socialist anarchism, but they weren't wrong. <laughs> I mean, like, but you read uh, an homage to Catalonia. The problem there was not so much that the way the anarchists were working; it was that the Russians had all the weapons. Well, yeah, that's true too. But but the anarchists there weren't the only like we talk about the anarchists because it's the side we like but the CNT was an electoral party and had plenty of other elements in it. I mean yes they were actually predominantly anarchists and they were syndicalists. I mean used- and even the even the Mar- there was Marxist organizations that were like I mean, like the one that almost Catalonia what do you call them he was a part of the of a Marxist organization. Yeah the Tro- the Trotskyists were in a united front with them. P O U M, the whatever the how you pronounce that. The poom. Yeah. Um, it sounds like French for it sounds like French for a fart. Right. <laughs> Le poum. Um, but to bring us back to the problems of of like what's in going on in Marxism right now and what's frustrating everybody. So the three dominant trends in Marxism is what Doug calls cultural Marxism. I might want to go on a digression about the history of that term and like when it actually emerged and when the focus on cultural starts because I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding on that but and then there's two other forms that are popular right now which is sort of accelerationism which i call productivism with steroids and then there's 
communization theory, which I call immiseration theory, <laughs> thesis on their steroids. They, these are the three dominant trends right now. Well, here, I'm getting, my voice is about to go and I'm ill, so I'm not able to, no con- problem. I won't be able to concentrate anymore now. So I have over an hour there. Why don't we come back and, and do a second part on them? I don't know if you wanted, if you're available tomorrow, even we could do a part two if you want. I can do a part two at about the same time tomorrow. Go eat, go get some rest, dude. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to The Witches, with If Not For Money. You can find Derek's writings at his blog, Symptomatic Commentary, and you can also listen to his excellent podcast with his co-host Amog Sahu, Symptomatic Redness. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Omega.